Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. Over the last several weeks, an estimated 140,000 people have been displaced by escalating fighting in Idlib, Syria. Syrian regime forces backed by Russia have scaled up their attacks in what is the last part of Syria controlled by rebel forces. That Idlib is the only remaining rebel-held territory is by design. As regime forces recaptured parts of Syria under rebel control, rebels and their families fled to Idlib, which the key players in the conflict agreed would be a, quote, de-escalation zone. There are now three million people in Idlib, most are displaced, and the vast majority are civilian non-combatants. But there are also al-Qaeda-affiliated militants and other jihadis mixed among the population. My guest today, Darin Khalifa, is the senior Syria analyst with the International Crisis Group. She explains this escalating crisis and what the situation in Idlib says about the broader trajectory and trends of the Syria conflict. This includes some key geopolitical forces that are now very much driving events on the ground. The escalating fighting in Idlib, which had experienced a period of relative calm since an agreement between Russia and Turkey, is a powerful reminder that the conflict in Syria continues to drag on, even as international attention is fading. A quick note before we begin, a big thank you to all of you who have become premium subscribers. You are helping the show put out content like this twice a week, every week, without fail. So thank you. And if you want to become a premium subscriber and unlock a host of rewards, including access to my exclusive morning news clips service, you can do so by following the links on the bottom of the description field of the podcast page or by going to globaldispatchespodcast.com. Thank you. Also, if you're with an organization and seek to reach this audience, the audience who listens to this show, which includes senior officials around the UN and government, think tanks, civil society, with an advertisement, then uh, reach out to me. I'd love to tell you about our advertising and content collaboration opportunities. All right, now here is my conversation with Darin Khalifa of the International Crisis Group. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So one important thing that people sort of overlook on Idlib is that these airstrikes never stopped. They go through phases of escalation. Uh, but really, since um, September 2017, when Iran, Turkey, and Russia uh, met 
and, and launched a peace process in Kazakhstan, they decided to create four de-escalation zones, or what the so-called de-escalation zones, um, three of which have been retaken by the Assad regime. And the only remaining um, de-escalation zone was in northwestern Syria, in, in, in Idlib, or what we call Idlib proper, which includes parts of north, northern Hama and also parts of the countryside of Latakia. And the idea behind these um, de-escalation zones was that this is where rebels and, and maybe their families would flee from other places like Ghouta that were being overtaken um, by uh, Assad and regime forces. That This is like where they could go, where they were allowed to flee. So Idlib has been the destination of, of all um, people leaving opposition-held areas. So whether it's voluntarily or forcibly, um, and there's a lot of argument about this, but um, hundreds and thousands of rebels and their families and people loosely affiliated and connected to the opposition have been asked to surrender their arms and leave to Idlib. And that's why I always say Idlib has been a disaster in the making in that sense, is that we've, we have been, like, we've seen this coming for years. Um, because while the regime was advancing in different parts of Syria, um, we knew that a time would come where they would want to regain control over Idlib, but there is no other destination for the opposition to go. And today, if you look at Idlib, there are 3 million Syrians living in the province. Um, almost half of them are internally displaced from other areas, so they're not from Idlib. Um, I think 1 million are living in camps. And it is really a microcosm of, of all the tragedies of the Syrian conflict in that sense. You have all kinds of militant jihadis, opposition affiliates, um, majority of civilians, of course, some, um, some active and ISIS, active ISIS sleeper, well, that's a, <laughs> some ISIS sleeper cells. Um, I mean, it is really a mix up of everything. Mm-hmm. And in, what happened is that in September last year, Turkey and Russia, when, when we thought an, esca- um, an offensive was very imminent, Turkey and Russia came together on a presidential level and they decided to create a demilitarized zone in order to fence off an, an, an what seemed then as an imminent offensive. And Turkey took on the burden of creating this demilitarized zone and the idea was to create a buffer between the opposition and regime control areas. And to remove all heavy weaponry from this area. I, I remember the diplomacy that led to that at the time and how frantic it was, especially <laughs> from like UN humanitarians like Jan Eagland, who's actually just on, on the show uh, last week uh, talking about something else. But I just remember warnings from him uh, about that impending attack on Idlib that would just have decimated the civilian population of of the province. And so I, I sort of recall last fall the frantic diplomacy that led to the kind of creation of these proto-demilitarized zones. Absolutely. I think uh, the UN did a lot of work. The US had very strong messaging as well. I mean, there was a lot of, of strong diplomacy happening at the time. And all the warnings were taken, I think, very seriously, because it is um, 
I mean, if you look at the composition of the province now, and as I said, there's nowhere else for these people to go as Turkey has shut down its border. And Turkey has been saying that if an offensive happens in Idlib, we are going to let people in and they're going to like it's going to be a decimation of, of civilians, but also of international jihadis who might find their way um from Turkey onto Europe into other areas. It's a threat taken very seriously by European countries, but also by Russia, who has allegedly a number of, of fighters from former Soviet states in, in Idlib and they fear their return into into these areas. Um, so at the time there was sort of a consensus amongst the major stakeholders on Syria that the containment of the status quo might be the best way forward. So keep the situation as it is, keep everyone in Idlib, but give the responsibility to Turkey to sort of make the jihadis in Idlib less threatening for the regime, but also um, put pressure on them to open access, meaning to open the major two highways that go through Idlib into regime areas. Um, and I think an important thing also to remember is that Turkey has around 12 to 13 observation posts inside Idlib to monitor the implementation of the escalation zone. And I think they have an estimate of 1,200 uh, Turkish foot soldiers. Hmm. So that was sort mm-hmm. of the, the, the status quo that seemed to have held until um, very recently, in which now we're seeing this escalation of of attacks on Idlib. Can you describe sort of when did this escalation begin and sort of how has it taken shape? Right. So just in the last few weeks, we've seen uh, escalation from both sides. So Hayat um, Tahrir al-Sham, the latest iteration of Al-Qaeda in, in Idlib, has launched an attack on the Himaymin base, on the Russian base um, in, in Western Syria. Um, and as a result, I mean, depending on who you talk to, so if you talk to the Russians, they're going to tell you as a result, the, Russia, the Russians intensified the airstrikes. Um, when you talk to the opposition, they say that basically this came as a result of ongoing um, regime shelling, which I think both both stories have truth to them, because as I said, the regime shelling has been ongoing. It never really stopped and and these opposition affiliated groups including HTS has basically launched counterattacks and they did target um the russian base so that contributed to to increase that escalation of course there are also other interpretations other things at play other factors at play when it comes to trying to understand why this escalation happened in the past few weeks um and a lot of it are, are mere, mere speculation, but if you look at the geopolitical aspects of it, um, some can argue that Russia is also putting some pressure on Turkey to, one, hold its its obligations or hold its end of the bargain on Idlib and sort of put pressure on the militants to, to, district, to um, abide by the agreement. But also some argue that Russia is also trying to give Turkey a taste of what it would look like if they don't hold their end of the bargain on other broader deals, including the purchase of of Russian S-400s. 
Um, and so, so, so one interpretation of this could be that Russia is increasing airstrikes on Idlib in order to compel Turkey to follow through with its purchase of Russian aircraft. Exactly. Correct. That's nuts. Uh, um, it is. Um, it is because the civilian cost, the human toll of these factors are so high. And as I said, Idlib is a microcosm of, of all these tragedies of the Syrian conflict of major powers just projecting their power um, in, in Syria. And it comes at a very, very high human cost. Just in the, in the past weeks, um, over 180,000 people have been displaced. The UN estimates that an extra 800,000 are vulnerable to further displacement. Around 16 UN-led aid groups have suspended activities. I think the World Food Program has estimated that um, they suspended deliveries to around like 50,000 people. So it is really a human tragedy in every sense. I mean, what would like an all-out assault on Idlib look like? And and I mean, do you see that as a as a possibility, as a potential? An all-out assault in Idlib would mean two things. One, uh, intensified airstrikes that would flatten the city to a great extent. It would look a lot like Raqqa after liberation from ISIS or after being recaptured from ISIS. Um, Also, Idlib is a very condensed and heavily populated province, as I mentioned. So it would have a very, very high human toll. And if Turkey does open the border, as I previously mentioned, it would mean millions of refugees, including including civilians, but also jihadis spilling over into into Turkey and probably into Europe and other areas. Um, so it has huge significance and huge ramifications, both on the humanitarian level, but also on the political and geopolitical level of it. I mean, it seems that, again, geopolitically, Russia seems to be holding more cards than than Turkey right now. I mean, you know, uh, Turkey, I I imagine, would be potentially destabilized by letting, you know, millions of refugees uh, into, you know, its border over Syria. Well, correct that Turkey, that Russia does have a lot of, um, they have a lot in their toolbox, right? But Turkey has always been, I mean, Turkey is housing around 3 million refugees to begin with. Mm. But also it is a transit for, for most refugees. And I think that's um, that's what a lot of European countries mm. have, know and, and, and engage in, in the conflict according to that. They realize that um, most of these refugees are not going to stay in Turkey, but are going to want to move on to other areas. Uh, and what's been the U.S. role um in sort of maintaining or managing or or helping or not um, this sort of uh, tentative agreement between Russia and Turkey that seems to be uh, unraveling over Idlib? What's been the Trump administration's response? So last September, when when we thought an attack or an offensive was imminent, um, the U.S. had, um, had very strong messaging to Russia and to the Syrian regime against the escalation and even threatening to to strike regime bases if an escalation would happen. 
so far we haven't seen that strong rhetoric against being used against this offensive and that could be for several reasons one of which goes back to your question if i do think an all-out assault is going to take place in my assessment and i really hope i'm right that that is not the case um that the regime wants to advance in in certain towns um, and want and they want to push the militants um, up north a little bit, but they're not prepared for an all-out offensive. Um, so, yeah. uh, and you know, what does this situation in Idlib tell you about the broader trajectory of the the Syria conflict? I mean, it's drag. You know, like, how much longer can or will? Um, this this drag out and and this this kind of situation endure. That's a that's a very good question. I think well, if you look at Syria today, um, you have three major zones of influence. You have seventy percent of the country, or a little bit less, under um, regime control, and then you have the remaining thirty percent are split between a Turkish zone of influence and a U.S. zone of influence in the northeast. Um, and I, I think Idlib could tell a lot about the trajectory of the conflict in the sense that there is a very high possibility or high likelihood that you would see some sort of, of frozen conflict where these three zones of influence remain as they are with very blurry separation lines. And then um, if if the U.S. continues to remain in northeastern Syria and if Turkey remains their observation post in the northwest, I mean, it would be almost impossible for the regime to take back these areas militarily. And it's also the road is blocked to have these areas through reconciliation arrangements, um, the so-called reconciliation deals that happen elsewhere in Syria. So it is it is very likely that, that this would remain for many years to come. That being said, these areas are going to remain very vulnerable to destabilization attempts, to attacks, to escalations like the one we're seeing now in Idlib. Um, so it's definitely not a durable solution in the sense that it doesn't provide stability or security for the civilians living there. Um, and, and the only way forward for that is through a negotiated process that would be internationally backed and that has been stalled for years. So in Unless we see a major shift or a major push from the regime's allies, um, Russia and Iran, to, to, to have a political settlement of some sort, I think we can see a continuation of the status quo um, and, for many years. And, and, you know, just the way you're describing it, though, the status quo seems like just, just shaky, seems extremely, as you said, vulnerable to... Um, various uh, uh, modes of upheaval should other countries want to continue to meddle. You know, as what we're seeing in, in Idlib right now, it's it's sort of a, not like a durable status quo, should we say? Well, yes, it is. Um, no, absolutely. I mean, it is not a peaceful status quo. I mean, take Idlib, for instance. We, as, as I said, there was a consensus last September that the status quo might be the less costly option, the more humane option. But if you look at the status quo, the majority of, of the opposition parts of Idlib are governed by they're, they're governed by jihadi groups. Um, of course, that is not a durable solution for the civilians living there under jihadi rule. 
the children who only witnessed life under jihadis in Idlib. I mean, these are, are major, major problems that are going to have severe consequences on the country. Um, so, of course, it's not a solution, but I mean, if, if you look at the alternatives, in that sense, the alternatives are just much worse. If Turkey pulls out of Idlib and a major regime offensive happens, or if the U.S. pulls out of the Northeast and there's an all-out assault on the Northeast, it will have a major humanitarian toll. And, and the consequences of the alternative of the status quo might just be way worse than the current already bad status quo. That makes sense. Uh, no, it, it it does, and and you know, it just seems like it's a recipe for this humanitarian catastrophe to you know drag on for for years and years and years. But um, alas, it seems so it goes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and as I said, I mean, it's every everyone who's been involved in this conflict has seen this coming for years, um, but avoiding it, it was. I mean, without any um, willingness from the regime side to offer concessions and from its backers to basically weigh in on a political settlement has been almost impossible. Uh, well, Doreen, thank you so much for your time. This is a very helpful explanation of, of something that's been in the news, though it's not, I think, making nearly as many headlines as it ought to. Thanks a lot, Mark, for your time. I, I appreciate it. All right, big thank you to Darian Khalifa. Thank you all for listening. Thank you especially to those of you who are premium subscribers and enable me to do what I do and put out this content for you every single day. As always, if you have any questions for me, if you have suggestions of people you want me to interview or topics you'd like me to cover, uh, please do send me an email using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. All right, see you later. Bye.